0: So, I'm Owen Barra, uh, founder of More Irish Gin, uh, one of Ireland's fastest-growing gins, and we make three fantastic products out of Tullamore, County Offaly. And, yeah, this is my gin.
1: You just heard Owen Barra, the founder of More Irish Gin, who we caught up with for a drink and a chat at a pub in Dublin.
0: Yeah, I've heard the... It's it's very Moorish, and um, I'd drink more of that, more, more, more. Uh, there's tons of these things that we've all joked about. We tried to get Rachel Stevens um, to do a video for us, uh, but her agent never called us back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand stateside. I'm Nasjan Havakolifar, or Nas in short. You're listening to the second season of the podcast, and this season we're talking to companies who've made the move to the U.S., we want to hear their experiences, follow their journey and see if they have any do's and don'ts to share with you. We'll have episodes once every two weeks and Mount Bunnell CEO Sebastian Saborn will be answering your questions about expanding to America. Send those over to info at mountburnell.com. You can also find that in the show notes. For this week's episode, we went down the pub for a few glasses of gin. Owen Barr is the founder of More Irish Gin. They started in 2015 and have a distillery in Tullamore, which is halfway between Dublin and Galway. They've been expanding into the U.S., and this year they've won some awards, including double gold in the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America and double gold at the San Francisco Spirit Awards for packaging. Now, when I think of American drinks, I don't really think of gin. So we wanted to know how do you get Americans drinking gin and also how to get that gorgeous bottle of more into bars across the U.S. Could you sort of describe what the taste is?
0: So on the nose, you get a very sweet uh, floral. So it it almost tastes, uh, it almost smells like it has a taste, if that makes sense. You can almost taste it as you smell it. To taste it on your tongue, um, with the tonic in it, you get a small amount of juniper at first. You get a big spice from coriander. So you kind of get this earthy tone, tone. You get a little bit of smoothness in the floral. So as it kind of comes up as a flavor and then it hits a crescendo with the rosemary and it slowly like eases out as you taste it. And then you get a sweet berry finish on the way down, if that makes sense. So it's quite smooth on the end. It doesn't have a sharp or abrupt finish.
1: And so, Ern, when did you guys expand to the US?
0: Just this year, in 2019.
1: And I hear you've won a bunch of awards. Can you tell us a bit about them?
0: We won double gold in the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America. Um, a couple of years ago, we won at San Francisco Spirit Awards, and we've won again at uh, WSWA uh, just last year.
2: So, so why do you, um, I mean, it, it's great that you won, uh, won these awards. Um, why is that, do you think? I mean, what makes this your gin um, unique? In, in the eyes of the jury. Um, so it's a very unlike other gins.
0: So generally, gins are made in one-shot distillation. So you put all the ingredients in, it comes off the still, and you add some water to it, and then you have gin. We do like four-part distillation. So we make juniper, coriander, angelica, rosemary, which makes it a lovely dry gin base. And then we blend in blackberry, raspberry, and cranberry. So distillates.
1: This is the tale of two valleys, one in the old world and one in the new. As you shall see, this is a story that has no ending. And the beginning has been lost. It happened so far away and long ago. So we're going to start right here.
0: So the whole story behind the gin is Tullamore, right? I grew up in Tullamore and it was a small little town. And my granddad was a distiller for a whiskey. company, So I grew up like knowing about booze and kind of like thinking that, oh, this is all interesting and it was possible to make it. So I grew up living along the banks of the canal and the canal goes from Dublin to Galway. If you see our label, it goes from Dublin all the way to Galway, mm. which is there. And what's in the middle is Tullamore, where the mountains are. So there's a whole story about why the company is called Ardaren which is the name of the tallest mountain. Uh, and I was incredibly blissfully naive uh, when I first set up the company. I was like, I'm going to use the sandstone filter water from the mountains. So I got into my pickup truck, loaded up an IBC, which is a big 1,000 litre tank, and drove up the mountains and pumped directly from the source in the mountains, which is what Tullamore Dew do. Um, but they have a 14-kilometer pipeline. I just had a heap of bank debt and a pickup truck. <laughs> <laughs> so... And that's where the label comes from. The postal route was a canal, or sorry, the canal was a postal route, and that's why there's all these postal marks in the glass. So it's a homage back to that. And you can see all the florals. When you hold this to the light, you can see through it, Mm. which is like reminiscent of the bushes and things that you'd find in the mountains. So everything's based around the mountains and around Tullamore. So it's it's Tullamore in a glass.
1: And so this is your wild berry infusion?
0: Yeah. So it's made with... Uh, Seven ingredients. So juniper, coriander, angelica, and rosemary. And then we blend in blackberries, raspberries, and cranberries uh, to give it a dry gin, but with a sweet berry finish.
1: Okay. And this is the only bottle you're selling in the U.S. right now? So
0: this is the only one that we've put into the U.S. so far. We have a pineapple gin, which was a terrible idea because pineapples are incredibly difficult to distill. And I lost the bet. And we seemed like a good idea at the time.
1: Does it it taste good, though?
0: The pineapple gin? Yeah. So it's not the usual sort of, it's not sweet. So we use something called bergamot orange. uh, And that really rounds out the flavor profile. We use a little bit of lemongrass and we use uh, lime, so Persian lime, to kind of just really round out the flavor and not have a a sickly sweet sort of gin. So So you
1: have that and then...
0: We have a London dry. Uh, and a London Dry is a style of gin, so which means means that it's done in one shot, so it's done in one go from off the still, which is unlike our other gins, which are done in multiple parts, um, and it has to be over fifty percent gin, or sorry, juniper, which means that uh, you get a very dry and refined gin. Now we put our own stamp on it in that we have terrible ideas because it's like, oh, yeah, no, we'll use this ingredient that only grows one month of the year, which is in September, and it's called ivy flower. So you see ivy that grows along buildings and in bushes and stuff? It has a really nice flower. And it turns out that that flower may or may not cure asthma, but it tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to still it and uh, to put it into a product. So that's our London Dry.
2: So where does... um. Where does juniper grow? Does it grow in Ireland, or where do you buy that?
0: It does. Uh, currently, we buy our juniper from southern Italy. Uh-huh. And the reason for that is that different uh, areas of the world will have different soil pHs, They'll have different climates, and the juniper reacts differently. So if you get something from Norway, it's very acidic, and it's a shark. Um You can get Icelandic juniper, and it tastes like pine. Um, it's really, really... Uh, a great ingredient, it allows a lot of complexity. Whereas the Southern Italian has like a small amount of spice to it and has a small amount of like really robust flavor. Now, if you want lots of spice, you go to Macedonia or you go to Morocco, you know, and these drier climates have different sort of flavor profiles.
2: Interesting. Now he has revealed the secret recipe, yes. and now we need to delete everything.
1: <laughs> so we've got this wild berry infusion. So this is the one you're selling in the U.S.?
2: Yep. So this is our first product
0: into the U.S., uh, and the reason we've put this in first is to see how it goes. Um, this is the one that goes with gin and tonics, and the States is like slightly behind Europe in terms of gin and tonics. So um, when you go to the States, you get like... <laughs> Their, their drinking culture is a, a lot more different than Europe. In Europe, everything's measured, whereas in the States, the people are poor, and you get like half a glass of gin, and you get like a little splash of tonic off the gun, and it's some like crazy sweet corn syrup stuff, um, whereas we're kind of introducing them to better tonics and better gins, and they're slowly coming around to it. So we've seen sales grow like 20% in the last year.
1: Can we try some?
0: Yeah, sure. Oh well, we just need some tonic now. George, like, nose that neat there and have a little smell of it.
1: Okay, so oh, it smells really lovely. It's kind of, um, it's very fresh and.
0: So we used an ingredient called uh, angelica, and angelica was used in perfumery back in Egyptian mm. times. So it really binds to the flavors into the smells, um, and it works really well. In that regard so
1: it's just like it's it's a really subtle subtly sweet smell yeah. it's really lovely
0: and if you if you just take a little sip of that straight uh, you'll get a, a lovely sort of sweetness to it mm. at the start and you get a little bit of juniper at the end mm. whereas when you try these two with the tonic what you're gonna get is you're gonna get the juniper and the dryness first mm. and it's gonna build slowly and then it's going to fall off, and then you get a sweet berry finish. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's almost like a crescendo with the the gin, and then a sweet berry finish.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not an expert on drink, but when I think America, I think whiskey, maybe tequila. I don't think gin. So why did you guys want to want to conquer that market? Uh,
0: because it's just an emerging market. Like you kind of go like they haven't got it yet. Like as in it's big vodka, it's a big big tequila country. Um, but the, the habits are changing. People are like slowly moving over. So like tequila for me is a bit of a party thing. Like vodka, doesn't a good vodka doesn't have a taste. Whereas a gin, a good gin is all about flavor. So it's just about time that our American friends got it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And how's it been going down?
0: Uh, yeah, really good so far. So uh, we've gone into three states, uh, So which is Michi- uh, Michigan, California and Texas.
1: Okay, and why those three? Uh,
0: because Florida wouldn't take us. Um. <laughs> no, um, we originally planned to go into Florida and Massachusetts to start, um, but what happened was Florida is a very competitive market, so they for were for like,
1: gin or for new drinks or, or for, for what? everything. Okay, like,
0: it's just it's really competitive. Um, So we met Southern Wine and Spirits, a big uh, spirits distributor in the States, um, and they were really keen to take it on for California, which is the third biggest gin market, and Texas, which is the first biggest gin market.
2: Laws in the states, especially like in places like Texas, on um, selling alcohol, are really complicated. Have, have you been affected by that?
0: Oh, yes. Um, there's parts of Texas that are completely uh, dry, so you're like you can be in like I think Kentucky, where the Mick Jack Daniels, is a dry town, so you can't buy booze. Um, it's really strange, and it's all these weird, old, archaic laws from prohibition and things like that. Um, as well as the three tier system. So you have to follow these like layers and layers. And there's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, so, like, let's say, for example, if you're in New York and you're a bartender, you also can't sell a brand. So, and you need something called a solicitation license to go and call to a bar and be like, hey, you want to try this gin? And if you don't, there's a massive fine.
1: So, so you can't just call up a bar and say, hey, I make more.
0: Um, I'm not sure about calling but you can't like walk into the place Um, I mean who's gonna stop me on a phone
1: (laughs) (laughs) You started selling more in the US earlier this year yeah so earlier in 2019 Um, Was there a lot of research you had to do what was the setup to get to that process and what what were you actually doing?
0: Um, So we first went to the States in 2016 and we were like okay um, The US seems like a great market it's a huge country a lot of drinks sold here um we got an importer. That was our first protocol, And then we need to get um, FDA clearance, which basically means that our product is safe for human consumption, um, which was a ton of paperwork. It took like eight months, um, and we finally got the okay with it. Mm-hmm. So we're now COLA approved, and everything's cool. Um, so then we went back in 2017. So in 2016, we got... Uh, We had a little bit of uh, interest. We got an offer for a 42-state deal. Wow. Um, But our equipment could not support that. My cash flow couldn't support it. It was like, okay, uh, we can't do this.
1: So that would be to launch in 42 states? Yeah. Wow. Uh,
0: That's huge. That was massive, yeah. And it was like a huge, big sort of, oh, my God, we could do this. We could be a a national brand overnight, and we'll be ahead of the gin curve. Yeah. but there was a part of me that was like, something's not quite right here. And then when we hashed out the details, we were like, yeah, we're not gonna make any money on this deal. So even though we'll be a national brand, we're not gonna make any money.
1: And but, why would that be?
0: Uh, they wanted so much money for marketing and like rebates and things like that. And it's in the it's an expensive market to break, but it was tying us into five years of making no money and it could end up costing you money. And it was just something we couldn't take a punt on. Um, So 2017, we went back, and it was in Vegas this time, which was absolutely fantastic. We won, so actually on our first year there, uh, we'd only launched the brand about three or four months And we won double gold at the WSWA, which is the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America. And this was like the top prize. And then we won like best in show. We were like, oh, this is nuts. Like, what have we done here? And this is where we got the deal from the 42 states. Um, So the next year we went back and we'd made the pineapple gin. And we entered that in. And that won, I think, a gold, Um, which was good. And it was really well received. It was more like people were really interested in this new sort of phase. They were like, this isn't like a typical gin that we would associate with. And we're kind of going, well, it's not your grandma's gin. Like, that's what people associate with gin. Um, or, you know, I hear a lot of kind of, what is it, myths or like preconceived ideas where it's like, oh, yeah, mascara, thinner gin makes me cry, you know, things like that. Um <laughs> So, yeah, like we spent three years kind of researching, going to shows, meeting people, going back and forth, and kind of figuring out if the market was there. And this year we're like, yeah, the market's there. Let's just do it. Um, and it was only when Fevertree, so who are a tonic company, decided yeah. that they were going to move their own operations to the States that so we were like, okay, cool. We would kind of count Tree as responsible for a lot of the gin boom um, because they made tonic a lot more accessible. To people
2: yeah I know, know fever Yeah, is interesting they're also quite big in Europe yeah.
0: Mm, yeah they're bigger big everywhere uh, I think there's something like a five billion valuation which is wow. insane
2: and and you you say that they drove the the gin the gin sales in the u s to a degree
1: yeah, um,
0: yeah. Well, I think they drove it in Europe. Um, so what happened in 2009 was they changed the law around still size. So it used to say that you needed a 1,500-liter still in order to make uh, alcohol. And a 1,500-liter still is quite expensive. You're looking at like 150K. Um, so what they did was they removed that still size, and then it allowed people to use much smaller stills to sell commercial products. And that kind of went, way. Hey, let's, let's all make gin. Um, and people did. So we started off with 100 liters, and it, we ran a business on it for like a year and a half.
1: So you said, um, you, were, you were saying the sort of stereotypes Americans had about, about gin. Yeah. What are they saying now?
0: Um, I'm not quite sure. Like I said, we find that the Americans are, they love it or hate it. They're familiar with their own brands like Red Hook Gin. Um, there's a couple of craft distilleries that have popped up, and it's, not, it's very big on the coasts. So on the east and west coast, it's quite good. But we found, like, when we got the data, some of the biggest places for booze, uh, uh, sorry, for gin uh, were Delaware. And we're like, Delaware, isn't that like a tax avoidance state? Like, how does that work? Uh, It's where people set up companies. And they were like, well, people actually drive from Pennsylvania into Delaware across the state border and buy alcohol there because it's no longer a control state. So what happens is, in these states there's three types of states. There is an open state, which means that pretty much anyone can sell alcohol. There's a closed state, which means you can only sell to certain uh, brokers or uh, whatever. And then there's a closed state. Sorry, open, closed, and, sorry, controlled state. Uh, and the controlled state is you can only sell to the government, which is like it is in Canada and most of Northern Europe, like Norway, uh, Sweden. So yeah, um, we found like navigating our way around that is it's a nightmare. But you need to start. You need to do a, con- uh, a control state in order to get in with the other eighteen control states because they all meet at this board, and you need to figure out what sells and what doesn't.
1: So you got this deal in 2017 to expand to 48 states, yeah, and instead you decided to expand to five.
0: Uh, yeah, no, in, in this, instead we decided to actually expand into Europe uh, okay. and hold off because we were like, we're not sure if the States is quite there yet. Ah, um, in
1: terms of being ready for gin?
0: Yeah, okay. because uh, when we were like tasting more with, um, with American tonics, we were like, this is pretty awful. Um, and it's just the corn syrup. So we're like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to reformulate the product for the American market? Uh, are we going to wait until there's better tonics there? Or just what are we going to do? So we had to think of a strategy. And then also, how do you break the states? Because there's so much stuff happening. Um, and one of the things that we came up with was we should get on Oprah's Christmas list. <laughs> um, we still haven't managed that yet, but it's on the list of things to do. So, yeah, like we're just kind of taking a step back and actually approaching the states as a sort of fresh market um, and treating each state as its own country. So, like, how we deal in Michigan is different than how we deal in Texas and how we deal in California. There's laws that we can do, so we can incentivize reps here in, in Europe, but we can't do it in the states. There's different like intricacies in the laws in different states. So it is navigating and it, it's quite difficult.
1: So this is interesting in terms of you have this big opportunity in the states and then you were like, let's actually not do this.
0: Yeah, and I think saying no is probably the, the hardest part because you're going, this is so much money, this is so much turnover, this is going to slingshot the company. But there's a huge risk in accepting something that big because, hey, let's say it goes well and then you're out of capacity. So you're looking at six month lead time to get bigger capacity in order to like scale up with orders. Like we didn't our glass company left us without supply for two months and we were kind of going, wow, if we'd taken that state deal, like we'd be out of business. Someone would have sued us. Um, so it was one of those things where we just weren't ready for it. Like, I mean, we could have taken it and there's that whole sort of like entrepreneur thing of, hey, I'm gonna jump out of this airplane and put together the parachute on the way down. And a lot of it is like that. But it was too big of a risk to risk our reputation in the States uh, and not be fully prepared and ready and know what we're going into. So I think by going at a smaller, slower pace, it'll allow us to grow more organic and have more control over our growth.
2: How do you do marketing in the States and and PR? So how do people learn about this new gin uh, uh, from Ireland? Um, Why should they try it? Uh, Why is it better than any other gin? Um,
0: okay, so the way you build a brand in alcohol is, first you solve the distribution. So you go into the bars, you get your like distributors to go in, get it listed in bars, and then you do demand generation, right? So demand generation is kind of step two of the process. So what we do is we do a lot of interactive online digital stuff. And that's all to do with getting eyes to see the brand and getting them to recognize and associate it with something. So, uh, we've done online videos. We have made a video about a gorilla um, and where we get our pineapples for the, the pineapple gin, which is like we say that it's from the, the base of the Sleeve Bloom Mountains, you know. <laughs> and thanks to global warming, Trump, and Brexit, uh, we're able to grow the pineapples in this gorilla sanctuary. Um, <laughs> And we t- partake in a banana for pineapple exchange, um, which is culminating in one of the guys dressed up in a gorilla suit uh, part of swapping <laughs> pineapples for these bananas in the video. Uh, and that's kind of been a, a running sort of gag. Um, the man in the gorilla suit uh, in a couple of our other videos. You know, so there, There's one where uh, it's like a really sexy scene where we're pouring like, the gin and it's like the actual gorilla is serving the gin. Uh you don't see it until the end, like you see all these like little cues of the gorilla. Um, but yeah, so like video is really important in what we do, and as well as Instagram. So Instagram seems to be one of our big core parts that uh, is growing our brand.
1: But do you market differently in the US to how you do in Europe?
0: Uh, yes, yes, and no. Right. So as in over here, you can throw an event. And you can get people to come to an event and try drinks and things like that in the states it's a lot more difficult to get people to come to an event Um, so a lot of it's direct so we do direct marketing so digital straight to consumer and try to get demand generation
1: hi you're listening to move your business to the united states with mount bonnell advisors I'm Naz, I'm here with the CEO, Sebastian Saborn. We're taking questions this season, so send them to us. It's info at mountburnell.com. So we have an email from Richard, who is based in Belfast. He said, he asks, Sebastian, what's the best state to set up a business? Well, I'm obviously
2: biased here, but I definitely think Texas is the best state. It's a very big state, it's very central, It has a large population. Taxes are low, red tape is low. So if you ask me, Texas is the best state to set up a new business in the United States.
1: Can I ask you, what's the worst state?
2: Well, if you look at it strictly from a tax perspective, um, expenses, red tape and these things, you would have to say New York or California. But of course, that's never the only questions and not, ever, and not only the only reasons. I mean, there are lots of reasons like, you know, where, where's your industry based? Where's your market? So often... Um, these factors demand that you set, then set up a business in California or New York, for example. And these are perfectly fine reasons. I mean, if it doesn't matter where you are, I guess if you just have to pick a state. I think Texas is great, but you might have as well very um, serious reasons to do it in a different state.
1: And this might sound random, but is there a dark horse state somewhere where people don't really tend to set up their business, but you think you think there's a lot of a lot of potential
2: well yeah wyoming i mean it's the mountains it's great skiing uh, not a lot of people uh, no tax very low taxes rather so yeah it's great yeah
1: cool thanks sebastian and thanks richard for that question keep sending them to us it's info at we've put that email address in the show notes and we're going to get back to this week's episode
0: i am a brewmaster like you no not like me i'm only good you are the best you
2: and
1: your formula. Say you're giving advice to a younger distillery. What would be the do's and don'ts you tell them about wanting to go to the US?
0: Oh, God. Uh, make sure you have tons and tons of money. Okay. Um, so if you, like, however much money you think it's going to take, it's probably going to take more. Um, and why is that? It, just everything is far more expensive than in Europe. Um, you like you look at consultants, like our US consultants are three times the price of our European consultants. And I don't know whether that's to do with the cost of living um, or if there's just a, a bigger opportunity there and people can charge for it. So whatever you think it's gonna cost, it's gonna cost more. Like logistics, like getting stuff. We land our product in New Jersey and then we deal with California and you have to get stuff from, from New Jersey to California, which is the entire length of the states. And it has to go by road,
1: which is like as big as Europe in a sense. I think it's bigger.
0: Um, I'm not quite sure. Like I know those maps. As I saw a graphic that said those maps were like really outdated uh, and not in proportion. So yeah, I'd well believe that.
1: So you're going to need tons of money. What what else are things to beware of or do's and don'ts?
0: Um, in the states, um, everyone will try and tell convince you that they're the best. Uh, like in Europe, we have this sort of. People will undersell themselves in the states. People will oversell themselves, Yeah, and we find good that point. people are just it's so full of shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fuck me, man! Like, is it like they're just like, I'm great at this, you know? And you're like, okay, yeah, great. Uh, just what are your numbers like and when we deal in data like a lot of the time we deal in data we're just like show me the data show me your kpis and they're like no no just trust me and you're like no no this isn't how this works we give you the money and you tell us what you're going to deliver and people are like no nah. now i don't know whether we've just met chancers uh in in my career in the states but we seem to like the, maybe the alcohol industry is full of chancers um but it's it's nuts um it's just a cultural difference. Um, and I think it's, maybe it's the style of parenting or maybe it was like MTV telling them they could achieve anything, but uh, the Americans are overconfident.
1: And so, and so... Not to
0: generalize or be racist. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> and so what, what do you think are big mistakes that drinks companies make when they're trying to go to the US?
0: They try to break New York. So they start in New York and they go, yeah, we're going to break Manhattan. We're going to be listed the top 50 bars. And they go to New York. And the thing is, you can bleed money. You can bleed money really quickly in New York. Um, I think you're better off starting in smaller places and kind of working out and kind of figuring out and learning the lessons uh, of the states and of the intricacies of the buyers uh, in other states and then working your way back.
1: And do people end up getting into more because of word of mouth? What's what's the best way of...
0: Uh, it's quite interesting. A lot of times it's bartenders. Okay. So bartenders go, um, someone goes, oh, gin and tonic. And they'll go, oh, have you tried more? And it'll be no. So they go, well, look, smell this. And they smell it and they go, wow, it smells really good. And then they try it and they like it. And people generally stick with it. So we find our brand loyalty is quite good. Um, now, we did have a big problem with the name in the beginning. Because people go to the bar and be like, hey, can I have more gin? They're like, what gin are you drinking? It's like, (laughs) more gin. And they're like, which gin? This is all the gin we have. Um, Give me all your
1: gin. Yeah, it was
0: like, no, more gin. And then it it just, it was bad in the beginning. And it's still a problem in new markets. So in the UK, when we entered the UK, it was more gin. And it was like, no, we've loads of gins.
2: Yeah. Is being from Ireland, um, um, does it help there? I mean, is it considered a, a pretty good product? For example, like scotch whiskey from Scotland is something special, something of high quality, a premium product. Is that, is that similar?
0: Uh, yes. The Irish have a great reputation for food businesses and for alcohol. Um, so you know the way I was stereotyping about the Americans? The Irish have a great stereotype about alcohol. <laughs> um, and generally, we make fantastic alcohol. So it's actually seen as a really good thing.
2: And um, when you dealt with your business partners there, for example, distributors and everything, had, did they have experience dealing with overseas companies? Uh, did they welcome you? Were they critical? Were they skeptical? Um, yes. How was your reception?
0: Well, you know, like the States has been a market for alcohol for for many, many years. Um, so the, the people that we deal with, they deal with a lot of international brands. So it was quite interesting. People would be like, gin out of Ireland? And we're like, yeah. Uh, and they're like, oh, you guys are usually famous for whiskey. And we're like, yeah, we, we know that. Uh, but this is a really good gin. And you kind of tell the story about why it's made the way it is. Um, and it's very different than your usual, like, London gins or London dry gins or even the gins that you get from the UK. And like, it's all basically provenance based. But what we've done is, is quite different. And in the way we've done it, it's not a usual process because it's a four part distillation, then it's a blending. It's quite an expensive process, but it gives us granular control over the quality of the product that we produce.
2: And how does this work now in the U.S.? I mean, so you have a network of distributors. Do you have, like, staff in the U.S., like salespeople? Or what's what's your infrastructure there that you've built
0: yeah so we have a, a country manager uh who basically manages our brand ambassadors in each state. so we've one brand ambassador for each state, and then they would work with our local distributor so a brand ambassador would do everything from marketing events to calling into bars to like just making stuff happen uh following up with data and sending it back so we're headquartered out of uh tullamore in county Offaly in ireland um We would have staff in the UK, which is a similar setup with a country manager, brand ambassadors, city by city.
2: And where are you you located in the US? Uh, In the US out of New Jersey. Ah, New Jersey. Okay.
1: So actually on that point, um, so how do you convince American bartenders to get into gin and to to recommend it? Uh, Do you need to say different things to them than here, given that there's like a different culture around it?
2: Oh. And do they pour it as generously as they
0: pour their own yeah. gin? Oh my God, they pour, like <laughs> it is crazy. Like I've had crazy nights in like, you know, I've had three gins and I'm like, I can't see. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they are very generous with their pours. But yeah, how you convince an American bartender is... It's a sense of kind of nostalgia. People love the Irish in the States. They are like, oh, my granddaddy was Irish. You know, I know someone who's Irish, they, the Irish. And the problem is when you're Irish abroad, you have a reputation to live up to. So they're like, oh, I knew this guy. He could drink for days. And you're like, okay, well, I better cancel my meetings tomorrow because this sounds like someone's laid down the gauntlet. You know? So you've got to keep the Irish international sort of like thing going. Um, yeah, so you, it's generally very well received. I can't believe how receptive people were to it. So we, what we did in the States was we started with Irish bars. And we went, oh, yeah, look, look, you're selling these Irish products. Here's a genuine Irish product that's no, not owned by a multinational. And you stick on the thickest Irish action you can. Oh, Jesus, how are you going, lads? zero. And they love it. They love the paddy whackery, And we just, like, play into it, you know, like, leprechaun hats, red hair. Um, <laughs> sometimes we do that, okay? Not all the times. But... People love the Ireland, and they love hearing about Ireland. They love that the fact that it's come over, that it's an independent brand, and they love that it's really, really different to everything else they have on the shelf.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, we heard this from many entrepreneurs from Europe. I mean, often they're a bit, I think they feel intimidated by the size of the country. Yep. But the reality is, if they play to their strength, um, and not being part of, for example, a, a big group or, or, or a big corporation, that can work really well there. Not just for alcohol, but for other things as well.
0: Yeah, Uh, I think people kind of, they respect it. Um, They kind of go, look, you're doing something. We want to support the small guy, the underdog. Um, And that's sort of like what we found in a lot of independent bars that they're like, you know what, fair play to you. You've gotten this far. You've gotten out of Ireland. You're now in the States. We'll give you a hand.
2: There's also this, um, I mean, I lived for quite a long time in Texas. Um, So in the last few years, I'd say the last 10 years, uh, more and more of these craft breweries came up. So this whole artisanal alcohol movement Hmm. um became very strong and and, you know people do these tours uh, that they never did before like like pub crawls in a way but from craft brewery to craft brewery that must all um certainly also help your product right as almost like a craft gym
0: uh yeah um so the craft sort of movement like what we're seeing with beer in europe is a bit of like craft fatigue because there was a lot of Me Too brands that hopped on and started making things that people generally didn't like. Um, and then, like, there was they were so hit and miss. Like, you get something and it's branded beautifully, and then you taste it, and you're like, wow, that's that's awful. I'm pretty sure that's diesel in a can. Um, <laughs> so with, like, craft gin, people are kind of, they're kind of a little bit more wary oh. because <laughs> of the, the whole craft beer thing. And then they kind of go, okay, I've tasted this. I really like it. I think other people are going to like it. Uh, and that works really well. You might need some more tonic, yeah, but it's, uh, it's pretty strong. <laughs>
1: got some tonic in here.
0: So that's one of my pores where it's like 50-50. <laughs> it's,
1: got, it's got a really fresh taste. It very um, got a small hint of something quite flowery.
0: Yeah, so that would be the rosemary. Mm -hmm. So rosemary adds this lovely length of smoothness and it adds like a kind of floral note to it. So it's not like the rosemary that you'd have in your lamb or whatever. It's a really, really nice botanical to use.
1: And so when you go to new markets, including the States or wherever in Europe, do you have to do tasting sessions with locals? Because, you know, everyone's got a different palate. How does that work out?
0: Uh, Yeah, so generally what we do is we go into a distributor and we go, oh, hey guys, let's sit down and train your team. So we sit down and we train the team on what it tastes like, what goes into the product, what it works well with, what it doesn't work well with, how to actually sell it to the bartender, and how to make sure that uh, it's served the right way. So for example, when you squeeze a lime into the gin, it it changes completely because the citric acid uh, interacts with the juniper and changes the flavor. There's a lot more dryness. so we do all these kind of bartender trainings, like we would go through our cocktail books um, and we go, look, okay, here, if you're going into a cocktail bar, here's the ones that we'd recommend, here's the ones that are highest gross profit. So we put in something called a drink strategy. So we're going, okay, well, these ingredients will cost you $1.50 um, and you can sell this for like $10. Here, your gross margin here is 90%. Um, and we try and get them to sell based on two things. One is taste, provenance, and then we get them to sell on data. Um, because we have such a unique product and a unique taste that they're able to offer a flavor that they can't get by combining more than one ingredient. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with cocktails. Mm. A little bit. Uh, so there's a, a one called a bramble, which is made with uh, blackberry and raspberry and things like that. Now you have the raspberry in this or a French 75 where you use gin Uh, A a puree like Chambord, or sorry, a liqueur like Chambord, uh, and then you use Prosecco. So, Mm. but you can just use this some more with uh, Prosecco and you get a lovely uh, dry gin with the berry finish to it with the dryness of the uh, Prosecco.
2: But this product, um, or I mean, at least, I mean, I assume, um, is that targeted at women? At women?
0: Uh, no, it's not targeted at women. Um, and we made a gin like so. I made this gin for me. Um, I really liked the. I liked something sweet. Oh, yeah, so that's lovely. I, was, yeah. I just wanted something dry that was a bit sweet. I didn't want the sugary taste. I just wanted a hint. Of berry, I just wanted something unusual.
1: Yeah, it's really crisp. It doesn't yeah. taste sugary or anything. It
0: doesn't taste like, uh, I don't know if you've had those pink gins where it's like a syrup and it's all fake. So we use real ingredients, like it's real fruit, um, which has caused us massive amount of problems in sort of, we have to like, do berry hedging.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's
0: that? Uh, so we use real berries. So we kind of ran out of berries one year. So we were like what are we going to do? So we're like, we have to forecast our berries uh, a year in advance because you want to hit it into Irish summertime. Now, was it, it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, we ran short of berries and we had to order in berries from uh, Spain. So raspberries come in from Spain. We were 250 kilos and you kind of think that ah, 250 kilos is not a lot. It is one of the raspberries, right? Raspberries, how much does a raspberry weigh? So when you see it, it's, it's nuts. Now, each one of those arrived in 125-gram plastic punnets. No way. Yeah, not ideal. Uh, so one, we paid through the nose for it, and two, we were in the environment.
2: Well.
1: Do Americans have specific tastes when it comes to gin?
0: Um, a lot of with what we do in America is we do education so we're trying to get people away from vodka so and what they what a lot of people drink in the states is called a skinny bitch, which is vodka soda and lime uh, and that's what it's referred to in the trade uh, it's not me being misogynistic uh, it's just called that and so vodka soda lime or they do vodka cranberry lime and you want to get people away from that you want to go okay well look we can give you a lot more flavor in your soda um, because we have all these botanicals infused, it's still low-calorie. and People are incredibly concerned about calories. They're like, oh, is there a sweetener in this? You're like, no, there's no sweetener. Um, so a lot of that's education and getting people moving around to it.
2: I think another thing is why, why women in the States at least like to drink vodka is that apparently, I don't know if that's true or not, but somebody told me that, you know, you can't smell vodka on the breath. Oh. So you can drink a lot, but you don't have... You don't smell. It that depends true?
0: on how much you drink of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know this. Uh, for uh, in fairness, uh, y- they they say that, and I. It was um, there was a great ad. Uh, Smirnoff did it in the sixties or seventies when stuff was really politically incorrect, uh, and their ad was leave you breathless. You know, uh, and this was the whole. It doesn't smell oh, really? on your I breath, and that's no, where no. it all came from.
2: Oh, incredible.
1: So, Owen, what what's been the biggest surprise about? trying to expand into the US?
0: There's been lots of surprises. Uh, yeah, so we kind of thought it was a little, going to be a lot easier. Uh, just one, how competitive it is. Two, how slow moving it is. Um, three, how long it takes to get stuff there. Four, how strict customs are. Um, we've had stuff being held up by customs so many times. Um, even though it's all like paperwork cleared, you, you have your cola thing. But if you haven't attached three copies of whatever it is to the pallet, you're gonna have problems so yeah how strict the borders are and how strict the logistics are quite yeah quite difficult
2: it's all very rule-based right I mean uh, uh, one other one other um, person we were interviewing said um, in in America um, she misses that people often don't use their common sense like they do in Europe you know I mean you might not have three copies but then you realize two might probably be okay this time you know what I mean
0: yeah, and there is that. It's like, oh yes. Yeah, so, so you don't have three copies, but you know you might have three copies of one document. So we had a shipment held up because, uh, what was it? it? One of the the copies of the document had the invoice on the front rather than the customs document on the front, right? But there were still three copies. All they had to do was open it up and just find it. So they held it up, and we were like, "Oh, so we had to go to our broker, and we had to send over the copies of the documents, even though there's two other copies still attached to the pallet."
1: So, so given all this, what advice would you give about trying to expand to the US, or if you had to, if you had to give advice to yourself three years ago, what would you say? Uh,
0: raise more money. Um, so realistically, it's incredibly expensive. It's going to take up a lot of time. Um, you're going to have to spend a lot of time in the states. Um, be prepared for the culture shock. Um, they're not European. They don't know how to take sarcasm. Um, we just, yeah. And they sometimes don't know how to take, like, you kind of have a little bit of fun with them. Um, what we found is that's not how it goes in business. They're very, very serious when it comes to business. And then when business is done, they're, they're good fun. Um, but the sort of cultural thing is, is really different.
2: That's my experience as well, yeah. So what's your favorite state for doing business then in the, in the States?
0: Uh, I really like California. Um, and if I was to live in the States, I'd live in California. Why is that? Uh, well, one, Sunshine, two, uh, really, really nice. Like the food is great. So I don't know. That was one thing I didn't really like about States is food. Yeah, um, good point. So like, you, you know, your grass fed beef here that we take for granted. Um, but Californians are just super chill. Like, they're just like, yeah, it's cool. Like, we'll just, they're the most culturally similar to Europeans than like New York. People are hard. They're like beaten down by the weather. You know, they're like pounding pavements. The grayness has just gotten somewhere. In California, people are happy. The sunshine, you know, everything's good. Well, that's another generalization.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Are there times you would caution someone against moving to the US?
0: Yeah. So the US is. It's a different beast altogether, right? So as in, I don't think you can look at the US as a country. You have to look at the US as many, many different countries. So you can't go, okay, we're going to move this and have one strategy to enter the States. It's not how it goes. You really need to pick and choose where you're going to enter. You need to be prepared for cost overruns. You need to be prepared for logistical issues. Now, with a physical product, yes, this is an issue, but Scaling into the US is difficult. Culturally, it's difficult. Sales cycles are longer. Everybody's selling, you know, and everyone's always trying to close. You know, it's like people are professional salespeople. Um, be prepared, and also you kind of need a sherpa. You need someone to guide you through the US market. Like you need to kind of go, okay, well here, look, here's this pitfall that you can fall into, and fall into a regulatory thing, or you can uh, lose your shirt by going into the states, or sorry, into New York. Um, so you do need someone to help you navigate it.
1: And wh- Why do so many people try to break New York?
0: Well, I don't know. When, didn't Alicia Keys have a song <laughs> about this? <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but it, it does, does it hold a lot of cachet in terms of the drinks market or, or, or what is it?
0: I, I think it's very, very close. And you can get a, a flight there in five and a half hours. So it's as quick for me to fly to New York as it is for me to drive to Kerry, which is the very south of Ireland. Um, So it almost becomes like just a Western office, and people go, okay, we're going to land in New York, and there's a huge amount of people. There's a big epicenter of uh, Irish, uh, you know, uh, expats. Um, So you kind of want to go, okay, we can make it here. You know, it's like, what's the third biggest city or fourth biggest city in the world?
1: But specifically in terms of drinks, I mean, I don't know, is there... um are there sort of certain lists if you get onto, you know, you'll have broken the rest of the US or anything like that? Um,
0: there's a lot of like the top cocktail bars. So if you look at the number one best Irish bar or best bar in the world is an Irish bar called the Dead Rabbit. And um, those guys own 17 bars across New York. Um, and the thing is, like, there's a lot of people drink in New York. And if you can get into the Dead Rabbit, people are copying the Dead Rabbit left, right and center. They're looking for the products that they have and trying to you know spin off on it
1: so Owen, how can people follow up on more gin
0: uh people can follow us on instagram so we're more so m-o-r irish gin um and then we're on facebook instagram uh and on the internet so moreishgin.com uh keep up with us there
1: you're listening to move your business to the united states from mount burnell advisors I'm Nastja Tavakoli and we just spoke to Owen Barra of More Irish Gin. You can find out more at moreirishgin.com, and that's more spelt M-O-R. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn, and our podcast manager is Navena Panovic. We use some samples from the Prelinger archives, who have some fantastic historical material from the U.S. We'll be back in two weeks with more from another company who've made the move. Send us your questions to info at mountburnell.com, that's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L.com, or see the show notes for more. Okay, we'll speak to you soon.